Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. Parental warning, which is that um, this time we're going to be political. And this time also the congregation is going to hear uh, a political thing that comes from the left rather than either the center right or the right, and we'll talk about that. I, I want to start with um, a couple of questions to you. Um, as I was reading this book, I was wondering who its author was, and in particular who its author was, because this could have been written 50 years ago, 70 years ago, 80 years ago, and it would have been um, written by somebody who came out of a very different world. And my question to you um, comes out of that is that uh, it, it comes out of a comment made by someone who went on a trip to Eastern Europe and said, you know, these are our authentic roots in a way that Israel is our ancestral roots and our imagined roots, but Eastern Europe are, at least for us Ashkenazim, our authentic roots. And I'm wondering if your writing it at this point doesn't say something about the conflict between actual roots and imagined roots at a time when the mythos of the nation is playing in a certain way, is fracturing or fraying. Okay, so uh, good morning and thank you <laughs> <laughs> for this question. Uh, before I start answering, I want to use this opportunity to thank everyone for this wonderful weekend, the Bauchlink weekend. Um, I came here not knowing where I'm going to be and what I'm going to do. And uh, I was perhaps all the time surprised for the better. Uh, I met wonderful people and I want to personally thank Ed. Where's Ed? And Terry and Joel. And, uh, and of course, Fran and Shmuel and Pam for, for putting this wonderful weekend. I want to thank Danielle for yesterday for the wonderful, uh, questions and, uh, gentle sort of reading. And I also want to say that, uh, I admire our current interviewer whom I read before I met him in Israel. His, uh, work has uh, been extremely influential in terms of uh, Holocaust and Elie Wiesel writing and uh, all those. So, so it's a good opportunity to say thank you to everyone. I'm taking with me to Israel a lot of uh, great memories and stories. And if you come, ever come to Israel, then give me a call or something and, you know, I'd be happy to, to see you again. Uh, I think your question is, uh, is, is maybe, you know, the most important question in Israel today, which is basically, who are we as a nation? 
Okay, are we... When we look at our past, do we look at Bnei Israel and, you know, the Torah and whatever as, as a true script of what we are and what we should do? Or do we realize that it is part of our culture, of our belief, of our, you know, system of, of beliefs? But we realize that we came from very different places in our near past and We should take these places with us and celebrate them rather than deny them. And, uh, well, if you want to be political, I think that the extreme right today in Israel, the extremists, they want to put us back in to, to the Torah, you know, to the Bnei Israel, to, to building the temple, taking the entire country, the entire land, and, uh, you know, restoring the kingdom of David, which for me seems very, uh, I would say dangerous, but other words, you know, come to mind. So I think this is, this is the number one question, you know, when I spoke about, and I, I have to say another thing about uh, religion in general. And I think I spoke about it in Friday. You remember the uncle and the, whoever was. So they lived in, I had an uncle and aunt, great uncle and great aunt, who lived in Nebrak, and they came from Satmar. Okay? And if you know the Satmar sect, then you know that it's perhaps the most, you know, extreme. And uh, so we were living in Rishon LeZion, and they were living in Bnebrak, which is not a walking distance, and we used to go there on Shabbat. Okay, so what we used to do is we used to drive to Ramat Gan, which is near Bnebrak, park the car, and then walk to Bnebrak. So they knew that it can't be that we're walking, and we knew that they knew that it's not possible, but nevertheless, we went there almost every Shabbat. So for me, Judaism, even the most severe and radical sect, is always also about being pragmatic, being realistic, being flexible uh, in a sense. And I'm afraid that there are many people, not many, but there's a strong minority in Israel that doesn't feel like that. Let me um, suggest a metaphor that I find um, I, I kept hearing, and it's a metaphor I use whenever I go back to Eastern Europe, that part of your grappling with is what I would call, uh, and that's most especially when you visit, which is the presence of absence and the absence of presence. And you're meeting the last generation that is going to know what is absent and what was present. Right. And that's part of the intriguing encounter that you have in these various towns and, and, and cities. And the other is the Jews as the um, fermenting, right? Right. As the yeast that, right. allow, that yeah. allows the culture to rise. And I think that that's true almost throughout Eastern Europe. Yeah. And today, ironically, in Berlin, it's the Jews who are coming right. 
who are adding to a dramatic element of, of German culture. Um, but the question becomes, uh, let me turn political for a second. And I want to ask you, if this was October 6th, what would you have to say about what Israel should do, should be, what the tensions are in Israeli society? And then afterwards, we'll ask you what's changed. But think back to October 6th. Wow, October 6th. Okay, so October 6th, it's, uh, Israel is on the verge of a civil war, basically. This is what I see in front of me. I see uh, the liberals fighting for democracy as we perceive it because, you know, well, you all know it, but in Israel, the, we only have basically the court system, which is separated from the government and the Knesset because the government rules the Knesset. So uh, we don't really have three entities I don't know, maybe you have four. You have the Congress, you have the Senate, you have the President, you have the court system. In Israel, uh, the only way to prevent the majority for doing whatever they want is the court system. And this was on stake on October 6th. We fought very hard against the government which was formed deliberately with the most extreme parts in Israeli society. These are parts that were never considered to be part of any government, okay? Uh, the representatives are ex-convicts, convicted in terror, in Jewish terror. And, uh, you know, I would never imagine 10 years ago that I would see these people in the government. So these were taken by uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu to form a strong coalition because otherwise, you know, he didn't want to be put in the hands of more center or left parties. And their whole motto, their whole goal was to basically uh, destroy the court system, make it, you know, uh, dependent on the government and the Knesset. And this was our fight. And for us, it was a fight for, you know, I always uh, told my friends and we always, we always agreed that if we're going to lose this fight, then basically, you know, if you have a position here in some university, I'd be happy to come. Because there's no way I can live in a state that is ruled by extremists with no possible, you know, checks and balances. So it was a real strong battle. It was on the street, in the streets, every day. People, you know, demonstrated every Saturday. But not only that, we used to go to the Knesset. We used to go to minister's house. We used to, uh, you know, uh, uh, write about it. And, 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 you know, and there was a lot of violence in the streets. So this was October 6th. This was the number one problem in Israel. I would also say that the Palestinian problem was, um, well, for most Israelis, even in the left and the center, was almost a non-issue. 
It was almost a non-issue. It was as if, you know, we learned to... There's a very famous uh, phrase by Bennett, who was prime minister before uh, Netanyahu, before Lapid. He said that uh, we have to get used to living with Palestinians like racist uh, by a shvan, okay? It's like, uh, how do you say racist in English? Uh, you know, like when a grenade explodes, there are sorts of... Uh, Okay, I, strapnels? Okay, okay. I, I can't say this word, but this in the butt. Yeah. This word in the butt. So we have to get used to living with Palestinians. You know, like some pain that we have here, and we just get used to it. So it was a non-issue because, uh, you know, with the Gaza Strip, we used to have every one or two years, we used to have some conflict. It was short. It was concise. It was, you know, it didn't really bother most Israelis unless you lived near Gaza. Um, the North was quiet. The West Bank, uh, you know, everyone says that Abu Mazen is very weak. And he can't do anything in general, like we cannot even do something, and nobody wanted to do something because you know it's Bibi didn't want to proceed with any diplomatic uh, endeavors, so this was the situation in Israel. this was the like this this is how the news started every day uh, I wrote thirty years ago. A remark that um, continues to frighten me, unfortunately, because it's true, which is I wrote that only a confirmed anti-Semite could believe that the people of Israel have the leadership they deserve. That's very true. And I said, I said leadership, which includes not only um, uh, The entire leadership, meaning not, not, only the, the, not only the government, but the entire leadership. Uh, I want to ask you, um, having said that, I want to ask you, and I told you yesterday that I had a um, doctoral student who um, wrote on the death of Joseph Stalin uh, in Russian literature, both in exile and in, the, um, in Russia, As a Purim spiel and but he had a one very brilliant line in it which was worth the entire doctrine he said in the line he said in the doctrine he said um, only fiction in Russia Russia the Soviet Union and Russia again only fiction can tell the truth so I'm asking you essentially that the This moral stature of writers in Israel has always been a countercultural leadership that seems to be worthy of the people. Where does that come from and 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 it's something we don't experience in the United States um, yeah I, I mean in Israel, if you look at the bestseller. list you can find some real good prose in it and I think it's very rare because uh, most bestseller lists everywhere are 
you know, just uh, what what we call flight books or stuff like that. And um, I think that uh, it started with Agnon. Agnon was like our great, great father, you know, everyone admired. He used to have this, uh, you know, eccentric personality and everyone was like uh, coming to Jerusalem to meet him and to speak with him. And he had like this mythological uh, figure and, of course, winning the uh, Nobel Prize uh, made him like a real huge figure in Israel. And after Agnon, I think we had uh, maybe three, four, five major authors, only men, unfortunately, even though some women deserve, deserve to be. At this point, if you know authors like Judith Handel, check her out. I think she is also translated to English. Uh, but most of it were, was uh, Amos Oz, Aleph Bet Yoshua, David Grossman, uh, and you can argue whether Meir Shalev is, is amongst them. Appelfeld? Appelfeld was, uh, was uh, almost avoiding expressing his political views. He was doing it through his fiction. He wasn't like uh, doing a lot of political interviews. He didn't write op-eds in the newspaper. But all of these that are mentioned were writing for newspapers. Meir Shalev had a, a, a column in the weekend in the biggest, uh, you know, Yediot Achronot. So he had a weekly column, a political satire column in Yediot Achronot. Grossman and Amos Oz and Aleph Betusha, every time there was something in the public discourse, they used to publish like, you know, a, a huge op-ed on two pages. And, and also they used to have even press conferences. You know, you would find uh, uh, certain events that you would see them, the three of them, like standing in front of television reporters and and expressing their political views, and people were really, you know, this is like our prophets. Um, and also, they took the liberty to actually publish uh, non-fiction books about it. There's the famous, uh, I don't know how it's called in English, but it's in Hebrew, it's Azman Atzaov. David Grossman. It's like uh, it's a book that he went to the occupied territories, and he started to interview Palestinians in the 80s. And this book became like a, a paradigm for thinking about our relationship with Palestinians. Nobody ever did that since. So he actually walked from village to village and interviewed the Palestinian people. And Amos Oz wrote Povasham Be'eretz Israel. Can Ve'alef Bet Yeshua also wrote uh, some some non-fiction stuff about it. So they were really, and they always said, you know, we Amos Oz, for example, he always said that he has one pen for his op-eds and one pen for his fiction. But actually, it's not really true, because in his fiction, you can spot a lot of his political views. 
And I think that speaks for itself as well. I mean, if you look at uh, Grossman, Isha Borachat Mipsora, which is translated to English as what's, you know, the major, I think it's even longer than mine. Um, what's it called in, in English? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Walk to the end of the land. Yeah. To the end of the land. Yeah. Not walk to the end of the land. Yeah. So, uh, so they were becoming uh, really, really uh, influential. I, I'm speaking now about the 19s. The Rabin assassination, I think, we should all look at it as the starting point of the, for me, the decline of Israel. This is the decline of Israel. This is the decline of culture, the decline of literature. This is where we made a very wrong decision. We, I'm speaking about the left and the liberals. We made a wrong decision because we were so astonished. We didn't ever believe that one could assassinate a prime minister in Israel, that we didn't realize that it didn't come from one person. It wasn't, Rabin wasn't assassinated by Igal Amir alone. Because before the assassination, assassination, you can see how the extreme right prepared the ground for someone to take to finally take the weapon and do it. You can see it in the violence. You can see it in the uh, rabbis who spoke about it. Uh, you can see it in uh, the sort of Jewish terror that, be that became so uh, wide at that time and our mistake was that we didn't fight them we just let them become more and more influential within Israeli society and we 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 instead of fighting instead of going out to the street and and because we were the majority back then we decided to hug each other and to contain each other and to be all together. And uh, this eventually led for what I see now as almost the destruction of Israel. I, I'm sure we're gonna get out of it and we're gonna be fine. And you know, I'm, I'm, today I'm more optimistic than I was on October 8th. But we made a huge mistake. And at this point, after the Rabin assassination, the influence of Grossman and Oz and Aleph Bet Yoshua was uh, declining. So there still remained the prophet of the left, but from the center and from the right, people were like, okay, we know what you're going to say. Okay, uh, you live in your fantasy world that there can be peace, that the Oslo Accords can be... Uh, you know, can lead us to some sort of a regional peace, but uh, they eventually they kind of marginalize them as being radical left. And I asked you about October 6th. Let's talk about October 8th. And then let's talk, let's talk about October 7th, October 8th. And then let's talk about today, February 18th. 
but let's start with October 7th. And we have to know, tell us a little bit about the letter you wrote about not serving and then why you were transformed. I'm not sure I'm transformed, uh, but uh, in 2002, uh, I served in Gaza. Um, and uh, my job was to protect a very small settlement in the Gaza Strip. Very small. By the way, there, was, there were around 6,000 Jews in the Gaza Strip living in a sort of a beach area uh, surrounded by thousands of soldiers. And my job was basically, I was a, you know, I'm an officer. I had surrounded a, by thousands of soldiers and and millions, millions of civilians. Yeah. And my job was basically, I stood, uh, I commanded like this uh, check post area. And my job was every time that the settler came from, for example, Kfar Darom, and he wanted to drive, let's say, to Ashkelon. So my job was to stop the Palestinian traffic and let them pass through. And after they, you know, they move, then the Palestinian traffic could continue. Now you can imagine that uh, every time we saw a car coming from the settlements, we stopped the Palestinian traffic and this caused every day for a, about three, four hours of complete traffic jam from Hanunes to Gaza. Because every five minutes there comes a settler, you need to stop it. So imagine that you're stopping traffic for an hour, an hour and a half. So this causes like, you know, you cannot even believe it. You see people standing, uh, in, sitting in their cars, just waiting for... Uh... And for me, it was, uh, I was at a time in my life, you know, I was already 20, 27. I don't remember the exact age, but I was doing my master's in philosophy, started to develop my uh, political, you know, consciousness, awareness. And for me, it was like, okay, I can't do it anymore. I just can't do it anymore because it's not right. Simply as that. It's not right. So I go to my commander, I tell them, look, it's the last time that I'm coming. And he's like, what do you mean? You're, you're an officer, you're supposed to be... And I told him, you know what, if we'll go somewhere else to protect the borders of Israel, then I'd be happy to come. But don't call me again to Gaza or to the West Bank. Or So he was really mad, and he sent me to, uh, to a military trial. And I was sentenced to uh, eight, 28 days in military prison. And after that, uh, basically, they either stopped calling me or they called me for some trainings. Uh, but they, they knew that they shouldn't call me again for, for coming to the occupied territories. 
And uh, for me, by the way, I'm saying that I'm not transformed because for me, this, well, the first, I said that the Rabin assassination was our biggest mistake, but our biggest mistake for me were the settlements. For me, there's a, a moral justification for taking certain territories if you want to defend yourself. By the way, it's also by the international uh, moral convention. You can't take it you can't take a territory if you think that it's vital for your uh, self-defense but you cannot move your own citizens into these territories this is forbidden by the international law uh, so for me in my political view the settlements eventually brought us to a situation that is almost unsolvable and Because in the 70s there were a few hundreds now there are a few hundred thousands and I don't think you can evacuate half a million people from their houses so this solution is is not valid anymore so what do you do um, so but back then when I refused to serve in the occupied territories there were a few there were, I don't know a hundred thousand people We were still thinking that yeah maybe we can either evacuate them or maybe we can give other territories instead and we still believe in the Oslo solution and we still believed in the two-state solution and there was still our fat and there was still negotiation and we really believe that he's gonna go for it even though in the end he didn't go for it and uh, But I have to say something, and I think most people don't know it. Uh, the Palestinians, when I served in the army, we already evacuated all the major cities in Palestine, and we also had a Palestinian policemen working with us. So in 1997 and 1998, when I was uh, in the army, We used to go every night with Palestinian policemen. We used to patrol in Janine, in Ramallah, in Gaza. We used to sit with them in coffee shops and restaurants and eat hummus and drink coffee. And they used to show us pictures of their kids, you know. And we all felt that, yeah, this is the end of the conflict. This is the end of the conflict. Um, and what changed in October 7th was, I never saw the, for, forgive me for saying this, I never saw the Palestinians as enemies. I always thought well, they deserve their own country, they are fighting for their rights. Of course, they have a few extremists, a few terrorists like we have. In our, on our side, I have, you know, not many people know that Hamas didn't do, uh, didn't execute uh, suicide bombs before the Baruch Goldstein suicide event. Did you know that? Did you know that Hamas did not uh, execute those suicide bombs that we are all familiar with the 90s? So I said, okay, we have Baruch Goldstein. Let me just, let me just um, interrupt only yeah. for one second. For those of you who don't remember, Baruch Goldstein was the man who on Purim 
killed 29 uh, Jews at Marat Hamachpela. Uh, 20, 29 Arabs at, uh, at the uh, Marat HaMachpela in uh, Hebron, uh, an American, uh, ironically, an American Jew by birth. Yeah. And a, and yeah. a, and a physician. Physician. And, and think of the date as Purim, which has its own religious right. meaning. Right. I yeah, just so, wanted to so, qualify. Yeah, so my, yeah, Bengvir had a picture of him in his living room. So my view was, we have Baruch Goldstein's, they have Baruch Goldstein's, okay? It was, but most people, most Palestinians, they want what we want. This was my view. And I think that in October 7th, I realized that at least partially I was wrong. I don't know the extent of my mistake. It might be, you know, it's always the, you know, the egg and chicken, but... It's, uh, my realization was that there is a significant part in the Palestinian society which doesn't want to live, which doesn't want to coexist besides Israel. Okay? Uh, they want to annihilate Israel. They want to take all over the land. We have videos of terrorists who are going into these kibbutzes and they are saying these are our occupied lands. So they are not speaking about the Gaza Strip or the West Bank. They are speaking about the entire Israeli territory. So my view changed in the sense that with these people we can never have any agreements, any peace process, and if we want our region to become someday something else, then we have to remove them from power. We cannot kill each and every one who holds this view, but we have to uh, sort of, uh, you know, not allow them to be any part of any Palestinian official government in the future. And it was very painful to realize that. I have to say it was... Uh, you know, going into, I, I reached the, this area around October and seeing all the destruction. And of course, most of you know that all those people from the kibbutzim were the leftist of the leftist in Israel. You know, they were the, the number one people in Israel that were striving for peace. Gaza uh, people worked in their you know, farms and houses, they, they in, initiated many projects that took Gaza children uh, who have cancer or have some, you know, other catastrophes to Israeli hospitals. So these are the ones that they targeted and they uh, hurt the most, damaged the most. So... Um, so let, let me, yeah. let, let's go back. There are implications for what you said. There are governmental implications for what you said. Um, the policy of the Israeli government had been to essentially uh, keep Hamas in power as the alternative to a Palestinian, um, to the Palestinian Authority, which ultimately had a political demand with or a political agenda with Israel. Hamas has no political agenda with Israel. 
believing that periodically they would mow the lawn and um, cleanse Gaza and quiet Gaza and show the what uh, the the ability of Israel to essentially say these are the consequences. Uh, and Israel diminished all of the Palestinian Authority, doesn't want to pay the salaries of these policemen that you are sitting down with and having. So um, what is the responsibility, not only of the extremist elements of the government, but of the policy of the government over a long period of time to creating this situation? Um. Hamas was the perfect solution for uh, Netanyahu's views. It was the perfect solution because when you keep Hamas in control, you get two perfect results for him. First of all, the, the Palestinian people are extremely divided. So you have the Palestinian government in, uh, in the West Bank and you have the Hamas in Gaza, they hate each other. By the way, you know that, right? That Hamas is number one uh, enemy of the Palestinian Authority, of the Fatah. So, first of all, they are extremely divided. And second, there is no way you can even uh, move forward with any diplomatic agreement. Because with whom are you going to Make peace. You're going to make peace with Abu Mazen, so what about Gaza? You're going to make peace with Hamas. They'll never want to have peace with you. So this was the perfect solution for anyone who didn't want the two-state solution. It was extremely, I mean, I can imagine Netanyahu. By the way, there are many quotes that he explicitly says so. Smotrich said so. Netanyahu said so. It was perfect for the right wing. And uh, they underestimated the ideology of the Hamas. Okay? They're under, they under underestimated the fact that they thought we're going to give them billions of dollars. So, you know, they'll take it for themselves. They are extremely corrupted. They'll give some to the people. Let them build their tunnels. I mean, we're not going to go in there anyway. You know, there was no point in going into Gaza. No, no one imagined that we would ever need to go into Gaza. So you kind of let them, uh, you bring some workers to Israel, you know, that they will have some jobs. And, and, and they simply underestimated their destructive ideology. And if you want, you know, we spoke a lot about science. Everything is there, you know. It's, uh, I write now in my new book that I told you about, uh, about how a Jewish community in the 30s, you know, how they kept living in the same place until their final destruction. So, you know, the signs were there, you know. When, when German, Germany took over those places, it's not, it's not like a secret. Hamas never said otherwise. They want to destruct, to destroy Israel. Um, so, and we all fell for it. We, we all, uh, you know, I, I, I can blame Netanyahu as much as I can, but we all bought the story. 
Every Israel, even the liberals, even the left. When you are a lefty in Israel, it's very hard to explain to someone how would you make peace with anyone because they will tell you, you want to make peace with Hamas, you want to, you know, Abu Mazen is weak. So you are left with no arguments. So we created this situation and we were all, you know, there, there was no way in the last decade to take Netanyahu off power because he was extremely popular amongst uh, Israelis. I don't understand why, but this is a fact. You know, there was five elections, I think, in Israel in the last uh, two or three years, and he won time after time because he has the Orthodox and he has the... Uh, and uh, as much as I'm happy to blame him, we are to blame just the same. So let's go forward now. Okay. We're now February 18th. Yeah. Uh, we've seen, and I have to say that um, I've been dramatically startled by a series of conversations with deeply committed Jews who are deeply involved with Israel and who have said in the privacy of their own conversations how appalled they are by what's happening in Gaza. And I'm also picking up on a word you said before, and we have to talk about a very significant erosion that is not only generational, because many people are not able to talk with their children, um, and these are what we would call core Jews, Charles E. Smith, Jewish Day School had 150 students who, former students who wrote an open letter about how their education was insufficient because of it didn't prepare them. Um, we are seeing that. We're seeing a transformation in American policy, and uh, President Biden has up till now been beyond remarkable. Yeah, definitely. Beyond, beyond remarkable, uh, but we're seeing an erosion in American support. We're seeing a conflict between somebody who looks at a, is offering Israel uh, possibly, um, you can make peace with uh, the Arab world, meaning Saudi Arabia, a line against Iran. The cost is you're going to have to do something significant about the Palestinians, or you can continue in this situation, which looks like, um, uh, you know, war again and again and again. Where do we go on February 18th, and what do you see happening, and what does that mean to, again, somebody who wants to have moral convictions and, and uh, um, who has uh, essentially been able to say, that's not right. And also sees you're not going to destroy all of Hamas. And I want to also suggest uh, uh, one more word, which I picked up from what you said, which is the difference between tactics and strategy. Um, I've said for years, Bibi is a masterful tactician, uh, and we have to uh, challenge the strategy. So the question is, where do you see us going and where do you, what do you expect to see? And also, uh, I guess the last part of that is, what do you want from American Jews? 
because you've seen this community, you've seen yeah. a community that's informed, concerned, committed, yeah, divided, anguished. Um, I have to say that uh, February thing, I'm. I'm much more optimistic than I was in October 7, because in October 7, I really felt that we are in a, you know, survival mode. And, you know, people weren't sure whether Israel is going to exist. And I'm not saying this, you know, I'm not exaggerating, but we all spoke about what could happen from the north and what could happen from other fronts, the West Bank. Um, we have a problem right now in Israel because we have a huge opportunity, as you said, to change the entire region. It, this is a huge, it's almost unprecedented. I mean, when you look at the Arab world, you see that we have peace with Jordan, we have peace with Egypt, we could have peace with Saudi Arabia. I mean, I'm not speaking about now Lebanon and Syria, which is a whole mess right now. And, uh, you know, until there's a solution to Hezbollah. I think that Lebanon suffers from Hezbollah like Israel suffered from Hezbollah. But, you know. Worse. Even worse, yeah. But, uh, but I'm talking about most of the influential Arab world. We have a huge opportunity uh, to make the region, you know, all these uh, Abraham uh, agreements that were made. We have a huge opportunity. On the one hand, on the other hand, it is very, uh, I think, certain that Bibi is not going to make it. Because he just can't make it. He has a, an extreme government. He has a radical government. Whenever he will do something with the Palestinians, Ben Gvir and Smotrich will, will break up the coalition. So, on the one hand, I'm very optimistic in general. On the other hand, it's almost unimaginable that he's still in position, you know, uh, and we can't figure out a way to uh, sort of uh, break this government. We always expect people from his own party to kind of, you know, vote against the government, but it never happens. It didn't happen for in the last 10 years. So uh, the Orthodox are surely not going to do anything because when they get their funds, they don't care about anything. And Ben Gvir and Smotrich certainly are not going to do it, do it because if they break up the government, they're going to be in the opposition for the rest of their life, I hope. So uh, it's not clear how next election is, is 2026. It's a long time before the next election. But right now, I cannot really see a valid way, a democratic way, to break up this government. So let me ask a very mundane and stupid <laughs> question. How are you optimistic? <laughs> How am I up to? Sorry. How are you optimistic? <laughs> I am optimistic because 80% uh, of the population would like Bibi to step out of Israeli politics. This is a huge number. Okay. We used to have a cult 
of BB fans. And this cult was, you know, you cannot even speak with them about BB. Whenever you say the name BB, it's like you mentioned... Melech Israel. Melech Israel. But now 80% of Israel population wants him to step out of politics. This is... So maybe it will come from the streets. Maybe it will come from the fact that uh, we'll get a, a valid deal to get back the hostages. And then Ben-Gvir and Smotrich will oppose. And then they will break up the... You know, so there are many possibilities, but none of them is certain. Okay? But I am optimistic in the sense that, first of all, we... We are back to basics. We realize what's the biggest problem of Israel. The biggest problem of Israel since the beginning of Zionism is how to live in a very complicated region. This is our biggest problem. And we, we didn't solve it yet after hundred and something years of Zionism. We are still struggling with, with our fundamental problem. Because... In October 6th, we were already talking, okay, so now we have Zionism, our country is secure, the Jews have a place to be, so what's the next step of Zionism? No, there's no next step of Zionism. We, we didn't figure out the first step yet. So I'm happy, I'm optimistic, because we now know we're back to basics, we know that the Palestinian issue needs to be solved somehow. I also realize what is Ben-Gvir and Smotrich endgame, you know? Like, I, I can see their endgame. They want is, the Jewish people to control the entire, from the river to the sea with no Arabs. This is like the, you know, I always tell people, how can you distinguish a lefty or a, or a, a left-wing or a right-wing, a, a true one in Israel? So my question is, if you had a button, a red button, you press on this red button and all the Palestinians are gone, would you press it or not? I wouldn't press it. Okay? Because I believe that they deserve a state. They deserve to build a state of their own, become citizens of their own country. I don't want them in my country. I don't think it will work. I think that the cultural differences are, uh, you know, you, you, can't bridge, you can't bridge them anymore. Well, that, that, bring, that brings me to okay. a, um, a different point. I think the entire discussion of the peace process is nonsense. I think we should really be discussing a divorce process. Yeah. And a divorce process, if you get divorced, you can't sleep in the same bed, you can't inhabit exactly. the same house, yeah. and hopefully you can get along well enough to make sure you don't do damage to the children, which in this case would be damage to the land, and you're best off if everybody were uh, financially independent of each other, even if it means sacrifice from one party right. to the other. Right. So I think the metaphor of peace is a, is a false metaphor, and one would get further. But let me push you, and, and with this we'll then turn to some questions, and I'm mindful of, of the time, but this is, an, to my mind, a fascinating conversation. We're now getting to where we should be. Um, what do you see uh, 
about American policy and what do you see about uh, what do you want from American Jews, especially given the fact that that at this point, supporting Israel for many is indistinguishable from supporting the government of Israel. And many find the government of Israel as appalling as you find the government of Israel. Um, first of all, I have to say, and I spoke to someone uh, uh, when, we, when we ate, uh, when I was recruited to the army, I remember the first day we came to the, you know, to the logistic part of the army and they gave us basically nothing. <laughs> okay. And they gave us a rifle, but other than that, it wasn't something that you can actually go into battle. We started to get so many support from Americans that you cannot even imagine. We, you know, after a month or so, we were fully equipped. And, uh, and I told uh, this person that it, it, it saved lives. And I'm not saying it, you know, it, it literally saved lives. And most of it came from America. Um, we brought, we, we were in Israel in November, we brought a couple of duffel bags <laughs> of material um, uh, people were uh, giving uh, and we donated for uh, uh, body armor and all of that exactly. stuff. We understand that and uh, 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 just a cute story, we were standing and they were going to charge us for overweight on <laughs> El Al and <laughs> then I opened the duffel bag and he consulted with his manager, and the overweight charges were waived. <laughs> That's a great story. When I came here, they found a bullet in my bag uh, at the airport because it was left. <laughs> I, you know, uh, <laughs> so they stopped me for inquiry. Um, but it's it's lucky that they found it in Israel and not in America because uh, you know was, uh, could be arrested. Um, so, and I have so many American friends, and you know more the, after this weekend. Yeah, and and everyone you know just on the first days, just texting and calling and. All my publishers around the world, you know, uh, and readers. And so for us, first of all, the feeling that we are not alone is extremely, extremely important. Okay. And by the way, I think Biden did an amazing job, way above what I expected. I have to say, like, you know, when he sent those two uh, carriers, I think that this was the the breakthrough that there's not going to be a war with the North. You know, they were okay. Now they're sending carriers. Oh my God! You know, so I think he did an amazing job. I really admire him for that. I'm sure he might have got hit by you know by people from his party that are not that supportive of those sort of, but he did the right thing and, and, you know, and doing it with Bibi. Wow. You know, it's like you have to stand 
um, to support Bibi in his, uh, it, I, I think that for him it was very hard, even on a psychological level. But he, he did a great job. And um, I think that now the number one thing is how do we educate people? Not to see Israel as a, you know, not to see Israelis as colonizers. How do we separate? How do we make complicated distinctions in our story? You know, how do we distinguish between settlements and, you know, legitimate cities and towns in Israel? How do we present ourselves as people who deserve their own country how do we explain people that free Palestine from the river to the sea is basically a genocide you know it's based this is what it means and I think there's a lot of work to be done uh, but you know what even in LA when I walk and when I talk with people I don't think it's uh, it's Maybe it's coming from Ivy League universities and, uh, you know, the, the radical left in the U.S., but I'm, I'm quite, I don't know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that most Americans, they know, like, uh, what's going, what's really going on, but I don't know. I get it, I get here all the time, a lot of support. Everywhere I go, not not only between, you know, Jewish well, people. So let's take some questions. Okay, right back there. Ira, where in this discussion are the Israeli Arabs? Yeah, I've talked about it on Friday. Uh, for me, the Israeli Arabs, we are going to have to change the Israeli story, okay? And in this new story, I hope there will not be us and them anymore. The Israeli Arabs have proved to be significant in this war. You know, as I said, they basically hold our health system and some of them saved a lot of lives on October 7. They went into battle to rescue a lot of people. And of course, there are some extremes and they have huge tons of problems. The, the crime in the Arab society is terrible. The, 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 um, you know, they're, they're still a very patriarchal, uh, still, the women there has, you know, that there's a long way to go with them. But I hope that in our new story, we will see them as an integral part of us. Also the Druze, the Bedouins, you know, uh, we have to create a new story. Um, and in this story, it's not only Jews and the rest. You know what I mean? It's, it has to be the story of this land of the people who share a certain uh, faith and goal and they believe in the existence of the state of Israel. And, uh, you know, what happened in 2021 when there was Shomer Chomot and the entire Israeli Arab community, not the entire, by the way, also then it was 5 or 
but there was a lot of riots in the streets and a lot of it never happened again in in this time and by the way I have to tell you share with you a personal story they are going through some real difficulties right now because I just uh, I had a writing workshop with Israelis and and Israeli Arabs and Israeli Jews okay so we were like I don't know maybe 12 people in the room some of them are Arabs some of them are Jews and we're writing stories and th- then I get a story of someone who whose best friend was killed, his best friend is Jewish, and he was killed in Kibbutz Be'eri. And then, two weeks afterwards, his cousin in Gaza was also killed by Israeli bombs. So imagine the fact that he has a cousin in Gaza, and his best friend is from Kibbutz Be'eri. So it's, it's very complicated. Some of them, many of them have families in the West Bank, in Gaza, and not only cousins, sisters, brothers. So I think we need to create a new story for, for the Israeli Arabs. Daniel? I want to go back to something you alluded to earlier, but you didn't get that deep into it, and um, about the way Israelis... think and talk or lack thereof about the Palestinian issue. Certainly among my closest friends in Israel, it's like they don't think about it. Yeah. They don't talk about it. And since October 7th, I've literally heard the line, I don't care if the Gazans have to swim. Right. So how, I mean, obviously it's going to be up to Israeli society to, to participate, you know, communally as a country to make some of these huge changes that have to come. How do you start to, how do you change that? Like, how do you, how do you get young millennial Israelis to care about the Palestinians? And the, the second piece of that is obviously you've been in Gaza. I'm certain that Israeli news is not airing the things, the images that we're seeing right. um, of It's Gaza. Not. So they really probably don't know very much about how awful it is. And that's something we have to confront constantly here in our conversations. So maybe you can... Uh, it's, I have to say uh, that at this point, I'm not that optimistic about it because... Uh, We are so traumatized right now. It's like in 2002, I don't know if you remember, there were huge suicide bombers in Israel. And it was really frightening even to walk in the streets or go into a restaurant. And, you know, twice a week, someone blew up a bus or something. And I think that this is the crucial point when Israeli, Israelis lost interest in, in Palestinians. And in, now in Gaza, you know, as I always say, it's so easy to spread hat- hatred. So when you see those hostages being taken, and a lot of civilians in the street are celebrating. So it's very easy to, to say to Israelis, you know, it's not only the Hamas, it's all the Palestinians. And it's very hard to deal with it, you know. It's very hard to convince someone now in Israel that there is a distinction between Hamas and other people, that not all Palestinians want to annihilate Israel. But it's going to take a lot of time, and I hope that the change will come through, you know, like as Mark says, that being 
constitutes the consciousness and not the other way around. So maybe the being, like if a sort of a new order would be created, then with time we can actually see one another as human beings because right now I'm very pessimistic about it. Karen. Over the last 10 years, because one of our sons is a klezmer musician, we've been throughout Central Europe, and what we've seen are many young Israelis living in Krakow, in Warsaw, in Vienna, and Berlin, and saying, I'm not going back to Israel. The kind of issues as a Jew, if you want to be a liberal Jew, the issues of democracy are not what we want. Can you comment on the Israelis who are leaving and using their grandparents' identity cards to become EU citizens and not returning? Yeah. Um, well, if they're going to Poland, it's not. Uh, yeah, it's not the most liberal country right now. But uh, yeah, they certainly but, but go have, to Germany. But we have to add one thing, yeah. which is, and I want you to hear this: that Poland is the safest place for Jews at this moment. Now, if I said that, my grandfather would fall over, my father would be nauseous. But I want to say that they have, um, I, I'm a member of two boards there. Uh, the JCC has open doors without security, uh, except when um, they have children in the building and they're required to have it. So we have to... Uh, and and Poland is the good news because Poland threw over its um, radical right government and elected a liberal government. Right. Right. Now, when I say that, I become nauseous, but it's a truth we have to face. Yeah. Um, I have to say that I'm, I'm I'm quite ambivalent about it because. If you look at it from a realistic point of view, they are not that wrong. I mean, Israel is not in a good place. And if you look, if you like look towards the future and you look at the demographical structure in Israel and you see who's gaining power and who is going to be. So the religious, and I'm not talking about the liberal, liberal, religious, but the orthodox and the ultra-right extremists are getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So if you are really sort of a, I don't know, you look ahead, it's not a promising place to grow up your children, you know? Uh, I can think of myself living because uh, I'm so connected to the language and the culture and this is the, you know, this is the place. There, there's no place for me like, you know, Tel Aviv and going to the beach and, you know, meeting my friends. And this is like the life I'm used to live since I was a child. But, you know, uh, so this is number one. Number two, from point of view of economy, it's almost impossible to buy a house or an apartment right now in Israel. Seriously, the, the, the prices are ridiculous. 
it is as if we are LA or New York or something like that, just without the LA or New York part, you know? So a lot of young people, they look, uh, okay, I'm, I'm a designer. I can make so-and-so. I can never have an apartment. I can never have like a house. They will always throw me from one place to another. I can go to Krakow and at the same price of uh, one bedroom in Tel Aviv, I can buy like a house and live. Yeah, so, so it, it, it's also that. It's also that. Um, it's sad, but you know, it's life. I think uh, I heard that a lot of them are now coming back after October 7th. I hear many of them are coming are coming back. Uh, and I will say the third thing, which is uh, very important, and, and we talked about October 6th. In October 6th, the feeling was that Israel is really falling apart, but not from a survival mode, mode point of view, but from a, we, we're going we're gonna to be hungry in a, few, in a few years. So if you're liberal... The, con- the country of Hungary. Country of Hungary, yeah. So if you don't want to be, you, if you don't want to live in Hungary, then, uh, then you know, many of them from January 2023 till October 2023, many of them left. Let's do the following. I'd like to take all the questions and then we'll have a wrap-up answer. So let's go and ask your questions quickly and we'll have a wrap-up answer and I'll take a couple of notes as to what the questions are. Um, an observation and a question, very quick observation. I think Bibi has a button he pushes two weeks before an election. Hamas has an uprising, and everybody votes for Bibi because of security. All right. Um, you can talk about that when you get back. Um, seriously, I don't think the Western world understands the power of extreme religiosity. And I don't think I don't think we have done enough to help the world understand what you mentioned passing before. Hamas is ultimately a theologically based organization. Read the charter. It's like davening. How do we do that? Okay, next question. Bill You mentioned the Second Intifada. Um, As we look at the news reports today about Gaza, there's the constant refrain of this is going to create a newly radicalized generation of Palestinians. Did the Second Intifada create that radicalized generation of Israelis? And are, are we now living through the conflict of the radicals? If so, what, if anything, can we say to our radicals? Okay. Steve. What happens to Israel if the Democratic coalition shatters in the United States and Biden loses to Trump? Okay. Carl. So this is really a follow-up to Bill's question. You said you came to a painful recognition in October that there's a much more significant percentage of Palestinians who aren't going to go for peace ever anyway. 
How do we come to that same recognition about our own Israeli population, that there's a more significant percentage who are extreme, and how do we deal with them, get them out of positions of power? Aryeh? He's yielding his time. Um, I'm glad that you got the equipment. Ladies and gentlemen, pay attention. <laughs> if Aryeh is yielding his time, this may be a blessing of Shekhiano. <laughs> um, I'm glad that you got the equipment you needed, and I'm proud that some of it came from here. Um, I support massive U.S. foreign aid to Israel, um, which uh, you might get again if the Congress gets back and gets his act together. But um, why, I assume the Netanyahu government considers military preparedness an extremely important responsibility of the Israeli government. Why did I have to get 10,000 emails basically saying we need to have bake sales here so that Israeli soldiers get enough military equipment? What's going on with the Israeli government that they didn't take care of that? What is it? Okay. Anybody, anybody on this side that has a question? Paul. Um, two questions. Okay. Well, it's closely related. Um, to what degree do you think that the actions of the settlers in the West Bank radicalized the Palestinians? And also, to what degree did did IDF's support of the settlers distract them to make the consequences of October 7 worse? Okay. Anybody else who has a question? Okay. Last question. So in, in the conflict between Israel's struggle for international recognition and, and support versus so Internationally, Israel needs the war to end as soon as possible so that to reduce the radicalization of the next generation. And yet, for Israel's own security, the war needs to go until Hamas no longer has offensive capabilities. So between the Israel's international struggle versus its internal struggle, which in your eyes wins? Okay. Everybody's had an opportunity to ask their questions. Let's go for some answers. Uh, extreme, let, let me extremist, go down. The, extreme, okay. Extremists, extreme religiosity, etc. Yeah. Um, well, I, I can share my view, but in my view, uh, when the, there's going to be another government in Israel, they they will have to be they will, they will not be able to repeat the Rabin assassination mistake. They will have to set ground rules for the extremists. They will have to be uh, much more careful about, uh, you know, letting them just do whatever they do in the settlements. And I have to say, you know, we're speaking about half a million of settlers. Most of them are normative people, you know. Even among these half a million, there's only a minority that is doing all the damage to Israel. So we would have to be uh, much more aggressive. I, I'm afraid to say, you know, I don't want to use this word. I don't believe in aggressiveness. But, 
you know, sometimes you have, when you want to change the story of a country, you have to do a revolution. And I'm also talking about the Orthodox. The Orthodox will have to uh, become somehow an integral part of Israel. Okay? They don't want to serve in the army. Okay, so go and volunteer in hospitals. You don't want to work, don't work. But you are not going to get money from the country just to do nothing, you know, because when Ben-Gurion allowed them to learn in the yeshiva, there were just 400. Now there's 400,000. You know, we cannot sustain an economy when we support half a million people who just, you know, learn Torah. You know, I heard that Americans are learning Torah and working uh, at the same time. So, so we will have to be more aggressive. Uh, we will have to also have a new leader. Right now, I don't see any leader. You know, you look at Gantz, for me, it's like, uh, I don't know. I don't know how to say it without uh, insulting him, but uh, he doesn't look like a leader. We need a new leader, hopefully a woman that can uh, change uh, things around, you know? Uh, so this is about the extremists on our side. Um, what else? Tell us how you um, view the potential uh, nightmare of a transition in the American government. The nightmare is my word, not the word. Well, I, I, would, I would answer with a question like a good Jew. What would you do if Trump uh, wins over Biden? <laughs> yeah. uh, I think that Trump and Bibi are now like enemies, right? Or something like that. Yeah, insulted him. Yeah, right? So, uh, and also he wants to condition AIDS, and now he's going to be alone. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, I have to say that uh, you can probably answer it better than me because I simply don't understand Donald Trump. I mean, I'm trying to listen to him. I'm trying to follow his way. I'm trying to realize what's his strategy. There is no strategy. Yeah, so... Right, right. Amazing. Amazing, but this is sort of a right. It's a it's a huge deal about the gas and a sort of a, you know sometimes um, people can surprise us. Uh, but I don't really, you know, I don't I don't get him. So he's, he's like unexpectable. He can he can do he can be, I don't know. Yeah, it's really unpredictable for. Uh an occasion to be immortal, it doesn't have to be eternal. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.